Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 12, 2020, and this is show number 792. Well, this week's chit chat across the pond is a bit of a surprise, and I can explain that surprise best by telling you what I sent to the Programming by Stealth listeners. Hi, Programming by Stealth listeners. I wanted to let you know that Bart and I are taking a bit of a break from Programming by Stealth, the need for which happens every single summer, but for some reason catches us both unawares every single year. Bart works in education, and the summertime is the only practical time to make huge changes to the computer systems underlying said education system. As you might guess, this year presents even more interesting challenges. However, Bart and I are not lying down on the job, and we have something to offer you while you await the next installment of Programming by Stealth. Five years ago, Bart and I started a series called Taming the Terminal, which ran for 35 of N episodes. Like Programming by Stealth, he made the ending indeterminate. He did this because while he accomplished the teaching he set out to do, he knew that things would change in the macOS terminal and new advances would be the opportunity for new episodes. After a year hiatus after pretty much the end of Taming the Terminal at 35 episodes, he brought us episode 36 in late 2016, where he taught us about a technology called Screen, which allows you to SSH into servers and start processes that would continue even while disconnected. In mid-2017, he taught us about SSH agents to address a change in El Capitan that made you have to enter your passphrase to a server much more often. This affected what we were taught in Taming the Terminal 30 about SSHing into our servers. Well, it turns out that now Red Hat has deprecated this screen utility, which we had just learned about in episode 36. And instead, they now have a tool called Tmux that does everything screen used to do and more. This week, Bart and I recorded installment 38 of N, in which he taught us the basics of Tmux that replaces screen's functionality. And in two weeks, we're going to publish the second half of the TMUX story, where he'll teach us all the other cool stuff it can do. Well, I don't know if it's all of it, but some more cool stuff it can do. If you're an avid listener to Programming by Stealth, then I'm sure that Taming the Terminal would be a fun podcast for you. And if you're a NoSilicast listener and you don't listen to Programming by Stealth, it's always fun to learn some new stuff about the terminal. You can easily jump in right now to episode 38, Or heck, you could start at episode zero and listen to all of the back catalog. As always, you can find Taming the Terminal in your podcatcher of choice. And this week's episode is also included in the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. All right, let's get the regular show started by a listener review. Greetings, Cassaways. Mike Price here, grumpy in Slack and price my 115 in the Discord chat during the live show. A few weeks ago, on show 786, Allison shared her newfound love of the Diamond Dog Tempered Glass Screen Protector, even if the bubbles under the screen still vex her. So I thought I would share a review of a screen protector of a different sort. But first, the problem to be solved. With each new revision, our devices get more and more expensive, and they also tend to last longer and longer so protecting them is certainly a good investment to help ensure a long and useful life. Certainly with the cost of some of the new phones rivaling that of a decent laptop, a relatively inexpensive screen protector is a smart addition. However, what about that screen on your wrist? 
If you are anything like me, the screen on your watch takes a greater beating than the phone and could definitely use some robust protection. And for an extra challenge, with the new watches using more of the screen, protecting those glorious rounded corners and not cutting off the edges of the image is a must. Before delving into the review, however, let's review Allison's criteria for success regarding screen protectors. First, it doesn't feel creepy or annoying. It feels like the original glass. Two, no bubbles under the screen without needing Dave Hamilton to pay you a visit to install the screen protector for you, that is. Three, the screen responds as though you are on the original glass. Four, it doesn't look bad. There are no scratches, a milky hazy look to the protector, and there are no noticeable edges. And five, that it actually protects the device when something bad happens. With that, Let's take a look at the Armor Suit Military Shield for Apple Watch. Link in the show notes. You can find these on Amazon in packs of six for about $9 US. I won't delve into all the gory details of the installation, but will say that it is more challenging and time consuming than a typical tempered glass installation on a phone. The Armor Suit folks have a great video for the installation, and I highly recommend watching it each time you need to apply one. Of the shields. A few highlights to note from the video. First, spray your fingers and both sides of the shield. Second, plan for enough time to do the install. The shield needs to set for approximately 15 minutes before adhering to the curved edges of the watch face. And third, it is recommended to allow the shield to sit overnight before being put into service. So how does the Armor Suit Military Shield for Apple Watch hold up against Allison's success criteria? Well, it definitely does not feel like the original glass, so no win here. While the installation can be a challenge, if done correctly, there are no bubbles, and no visits from Dave Hamilton required. While the feel is different, the screen response is not. The shield does not impede the touch sensitivity of the watch in any way whatsoever, including force touch. The shield is crystal clear, and since it wraps around to cover the curved edges, you almost can't even see that there's a screen protector at all. And according to the manufacturer, the shield is equipped with self-healing technology, which will help eliminate minor scratches and dings that the film may pick up over time. After whacking my watch against door frames, striking hard enough to take off paint, and working on my car and other machinery where the face is getting scratched up, the watch and shield continue to look flawless, even on the curved edges. I should also note, if the shield has picked up any scuffs or paint, it, they can be easily cleaned up with a little isopropyl alcohol and gentle cleaning. So all in all, I would have to give the Armor Suit Military Shield for Apple Watch a big thumbs up for protecting my watch. But I should also note that there is a downside. You might think that the six-pack I mentioned was a lifetime supply, but this is simply not the case. Since the shield is not tempered glass, and since the film is fitted to protect the curved edges, 
The shield does not last as long as its tempered glass brethren. My experience has been that usually after about eight weeks of normal wear, I will find one of the corners starting to peel up. If caught early enough, you may be able to re-adhere that corner, but eventually it will start peeling more. I can usually put up with the loose corner for another week or so before needing to replace the shield. Looking at the manufacturer's website, they also have protectors for the entire body of the watch, but I haven't had any experience with those. I hope this review helps you to keep all your beloved tech well protected. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me in the Slack community. That was fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much. I have been looking at those um, cover the shields for Apple Watches because I definitely bang my wrist into everything. It seems like they all fall into one of two classes, either uh, like the Armor Shield. Um, is it Armor Shield? Was that the right name? Anyway, like the one you just reviewed, uh, where eventually they start to peel, or they're a hard shape that's like a, a tempered glass. But then you know what those do? They just pop off. You just look down at your watch one day and they're gone uh, from the reviews I saw. So anyway, uh, I appreciate the review and I will consider that one very carefully. In Programming by Stealth with Bart Bouchotts, our latest assignment has been to create a world clock. I've talked to you a little bit about this a couple of times. Through the last few months, Bart has been adding challenges to make it more and more useful. For once, I got ahead of the class by adding new functionality to mine before Bart ever assigned that challenge to us. Let's step back a little bit and let me elaborate. These world clocks are web apps written in JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. At one point, the assignment was to create a set of clocks where the user could see the time zone in two different cities where they actually got to choose the time zones to view. I talked to a lot of people in a lot of different time zones, so this was a super fun assignment for me. It was useful because I could, say, change one zone to New Zealand and see at a glance whether Alistair was awake yet. He's on the other side of the international dateline, so I like to find out what's happening in the world tomorrow. But I also often need to people with, uh, that are in other parts of the world, and figuring out what time we will meet is often quite challenging. You've heard me talk before about this problem. It's not that I need to know what time it is right now in another time zone. It's that I need to figure out what time it will be in another time zone if I shift forward in time. Now, there used to be an amazing dashboard widget called Time Scroller that solved the problem for me, which I first started talking about to you in August of 2009. Sadly, dashboard widgets were removed with the recent macOS update. There is still an app for the iPhone, but it hasn't been updated in a very long time. And I usually need this when I'm just looking at my Mac. I want instant access to that information. So this gave me the idea to add this concept of shifting time to my world clock. So I named it Time Shifter Clock. I actually put my clock up at podfeet.com so you could see it. And it works great. We've been working on even more enhanced capabilities in our clocks, but I'm not ready to show those to you yet. I have, however, continued to annoy my friends and family by showing them every single little iteration along the way because I get all excited when something works. One of those people I've been showing off my clock to is Pat Dangler. This week, Pat told me about a really swell menu bar app called Clocker that pretty much does everything what my, that my time shifter clock does. Now, you might think that would be discouraging to me, but it's not discouraging. It's awesome. It's awesome for a couple of reasons. First of all, a web app like my time shifter clock is pretty swell, 
but having this capability in a menu bar app is way more useful. Secondly, it's not discouraging because I don't know how to write a Mac app, so it doesn't step on my toes at all. Finally, Clocker is a fantastic app. Let's take a deep look at Clocker and see if it's for you. Even though Clocker is a menu bar app, it can also be pinned on screen as a floating panel. When you're figuring out a meeting time across time zones and your short-term memory is as bad as mine, it's not very practical to have to keep clicking a menu bar icon for each time you need to remember. On the other hand, most of the time you probably do want it to disappear. If you're a dock person, there's a setting in the Appearances tab to have it both be a dock and menu bar app. You can even record a shortcut to pop open Clocker if going all the way to the menu bar is just too hard. If you had it pinned when you closed it, Clocker comes back with the keystroke as a floating panel. But if it was stuck to the menu bar, it comes back that way. Everybody's happy. Speaking of settings, this is where you add cities you want to have displayed in Clocker. There's a little plus button in the bottom left that brings up a list of places to add and a search window. You can search for a city, a country, or even a street name, but I don't see how that last one's all that practical. Clocker also has a list you can scroll through that's actually not too long. In there, I found a funny thing they list called Anywhere on Earth. I added it to my list because, I mean, why wouldn't you? I'm not sure where this joke started, but pretty much all of the online time zone calculators have Anywhere on Earth, too. Evidently, it's 12 hours behind UTC if you're wondering when it is. I populated my list with Dublin for Bart, the Netherlands for Helma, Wellington for Alistair and Marianne, Germany for Klaus, and Kyoto for Kaylee. Still in settings, it shows two columns for the zones I'd chosen, one for name and one for label. That got me to wondering whether you could change the label. Sure enough, clicking on the label allowed me to change it so it had names of my friends instead of listing the cities. Now that allowed me to collapse Helma and Klaus together because they're both nine hours ahead of me and then add Don McAllister to Bart since England is in the same time zone as Ireland. I want to make a comment on styling with Clocker. The font is huge when you're creating your list of cities, so it's actually kind of hard to work with in the settings. The window for preferences isn't resizable horizontally or vertically. As I added Alistair and Marianne to the Wellington label, I could only see Mary dot dot dot. Not even the rest of Marianne, much less Alistair. And I had seven zones in my list, so Kaylee in Japan fell off of the bottom and I had to scroll down to see her. I'm not quite sure why the font size is so big in the settings. Still in settings, you can change the viewing order to sort by time difference from you, by name, by the label you've chosen to give in the time, or you can even drag and drop the time zones to put them in an order of your own choosing. I selected that. There's also a checkbox for favorites. If you designate a time zone as a favorite, the menu bar icon for Clocker will actually change to show the labels and times in the menu bar. It's good to keep the times short or they'll be truncated. Being able to glance at my menu bar and see just Bart and the time at his house is absolutely terrific. I should mention this does actually replace the normal Clocker menu bar icon, so I can click on Bart's name and see all of the times in my list. Now, I haven't actually described to you what you see when you open Clocker, either as a drop-down from the menu bar or as a floating panel, because there's so many options to how you want to see it. It's a very clean list of the labels for the time zones, cities, countries you've selected, along with their current time. At the bottom of the screen is what the developer calls the future slider. 
Drag the slider to the right and all of the times shift along with you. To the right of the future slider is your own time, so you can slide to a time you'd find convenient to meet with someone and then look at the list to see if you would be asking Mariana New Zealand to get up at 4.30 a.m. if you chose that time. She loves it when people do that. Anyway, this is really slick and it works quite well. Under each label, you also get some information about how the time in that zone relates to you. For example, you can have it say the date and how many hours ahead or behind they are from you. For example, when I was writing this up, I, it was July 10th, and under Marianne and Alistair, it says July 11th, 19 hours ahead. I've had so much trouble with New Zealand that this is really going to help. It's not just that they're on the other side of the international dateline from me. They're also in the southern hemisphere, so they go in and out of daylight saving time opposite from me. And of course, the U.S. is shifted by a few weeks from the rest of the world on daylight saving time, so it's a complete mess trying to figure it out. Now, I have it at a glance with no math required. The Appearance tab of Settings is where all of the options come in. You can change the time format to show it as 12 or 24-hour clocks, and you can choose whether to show seconds in the time. Now, both of these were challenges Bart gave us for our world clocks in Programming by Stealth, which, by the way, I mastered. Now, I eventually got rid of the seconds toggle on my clock after I proved I could do it because I thought it was kind of distracting to see seconds blinking away after shifting the time. I wanted mine to stay still. So that brings up an improvement suggestion for the developer of Clocker. Noting that it shows seconds, I realized that after you scroll the time, it keeps advancing in all of the time zones, so the time continues to advance. I slid the time to 10 a.m. at my house, and the scroll bar continues to say 10 a.m., but after five minutes of the window being open, even my local time says 10.05 a.m. Now, this can be very confusing if you leave your leave clocker open for a long time after sliding the time and then glance at it expecting to see current times. I left it saying 10 a.m. local time on the scroller and then had dinner, watched some TV, came back to writing, and it said it was 7.31 p.m. at Bart's house, when it was actually 7.58 p.m. at my house. We aren't that close in time. I was really confused at first. Now, this isn't a huge deal if you record the times right after you use the future slider, but I think it makes more sense to freeze those clocks once you've engaged the slider. There's a lot more to like in the Appearance tab. There are three options on how to see the day for each of the time zones. You can use Relative, which will write today, tomorrow, or yesterday under each time. You can choose actual, which puts the day of the week, such as Friday or Thursday. Or you can have it display the date in month and day. Again, something for everyone in Clocker. Maybe you don't need the future time slider. That's cool. You can turn it off in appearance. You can have Clocker display sunrise and sunset in each time if you like. This could be useful if you want a quick visual on how far you can push the other person into an annoying time of day. It also tells you what time sunset and sunrise are based on which one is closer to the time you've chosen. I think it's a little too much information for me and a little too hard to interpret the icons, so I'm glad I have the option to toggle it off, but you might like to have it on. You can change the size of the font display of Clocker as well. It's a nice accessibility feature and it really helps to see things at a quick glance. If you pump the font size up all the way and have more than, say, five times in your list, you will have to scroll to see all of them, though, because the clocker window is not resizable. By default, the future slider goes forward just 24 hours, which is all I thought it would do. But since it actually tells you the day and date and time, 
the developer lets you extend the future slider out to seven days. I hadn't thought about going out days on my time shifter. Bart is going to love this tool for his scheduling of Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography guests. There are some menu bar specific options as well. Remember how you can have one or more time zones set as favorites and see them in the menu bar? In appearance, you can toggle on or off the day and date as well in the menu bar. Now, remember how I said you should keep your labels short so they fit in that menu bar app if they're favorites? If they're favorites, sorry, when they're just in the menu bar? Well, in appearance, it shows that by default, it's shown in compact mode, but you can actually change it to standard mode. It suddenly gets quite a bit bigger and you can see the full text. However, if you put more than one favorite up with the standard size, you'll get a warning from Clocker that's really interesting. It says, multiple time zones occupy space, and if macOS determines Clocker is occupying too much space, it'll hide Clocker entirely. Now, I did not know that macOS watched out for menu bar hogs. I'm sure glad it does because I've got so many of them, and they take up basically all usable space as it is. There's one toggle that's grayed out for me, and I'm not sure why. It's called Include Place Name. I have no idea what that is. I thought maybe it was because I relabeled all of the time zones, but I put them back to their original form, and it was still grayed out. I bet you thought we were done by now. Nope, Clocker has one more trick up its proverbial sleeve. If you give Clocker the appropriate permissions, it can display upcoming calendar events and notifications of reminders. There's a toggle on whether to list your upcoming events at the bottom of your clocker window and whether to show all-day meetings. You can even choose which calendars to show in your upcoming events. There's also one to show your next meeting title in the menu bar 30 minutes before it starts. You can even set how many characters to show in the menu bar. I put a fake meeting into my calendar to test these features, and while it did show up on the floating window, I never saw a notice in the menu bar. Not quite sure what I was doing wrong there. If you grant Clocker access to your reminders, it says you can set reminders in the time zones of the location of your choice and that your reminders are stored in the default reminders app. This made me think, I interpreted that as saying I could add reminders using Clocker. But I don't know, I couldn't figure out any way to do that. There are three circular dots next to each time zone label and they seem like they'd be buttons to do something, but I tried every which way to click them that I could think of, and nothing happened. Definitely not a big deal, but I'm still curious how to do what the developer is trying to tell us we can do. Speaking of giving permissions to Clocker, the developer made it super obvious that you can revoke these permissions and system preferences at any time. I like that. When I saw the huge font size option in settings, it occurred to me... Maybe this developer made Clocker accessible with voiceover. And I was delighted to find that to be absolutely true. I went through pretty much every single menu and control using voiceover and everything worked. Everything was labeled. Every control worked. The only improvement I could see was that the future slider reads out the percentage you've moved it rather than by how much time. If you set it to allow time shifting, say, up to seven days then that's a lot of math in your head to figure out how for, far forward in time 12% would be. To find an app that is 100% accessible always makes me happy. Now, I probably should have told you this up front. I've buried the lead. Clocker is free in the Mac App Store, and I am certain that it has gained a permanent home in my menu bar. The developer has a link to where you can help with the localization efforts going on 
The developer has a link where you can help with the localization efforts going on to make sure that Clocker is available in as many languages as possible. Well, next up, we've got a very unusual review from Klaus Wolf. You probably have fond memories of your first something. Maybe it's your first car, your first computer, certainly your first kiss. These memories stay with us, and when we think back to them, they give us a nice and cozy feeling. Considering that this is a site with an ever-so-slight Macintosh bias, I decided to review my most recent acquisition, an Apple iMac G3 with 20GB of hard drive, 128MB of RAM from summer 2000. A most beautiful computer. It was a machine very similar to this one that was my first Macintosh. To be fair, it wasn't mine at all. It sat on my desk when I worked in technical support in London, and I was the one guy who didn't mind using it. The other day, as I was idly browsing eBay Kleinanzeigen, I came across an advert for this particular machine, and to paraphrase something Andy Anatko says often, I had 70 euros, and I will make another 70 euros rather quickly, so I bought the machine. Sight unseen. I was lucky. It arrived in good condition, only the bottom left control key is broken, everything else looks great, and it booted without problems. MacOS 9.0.4 greeted me with its not-so-terribly-unfamiliar look. While there were massive advances in user interface design in those 20 years, it was super easy to figure out how to go about things. The installed programs took me down memory lane, and it was a lot of fun to just click around. The internet still works, after I manually changed the TCP IP settings for my wired connection. Let me qualify, though, what I mean when I say the internet works. The installed browsers on that machine are so old that they cannot handle HTTPS connections, and there are no modern versions for obvious reasons. What that means is that you can Google just fine, as Google offers an HTTP connection, but most everything you might want to access, including potfeed.com, will be inaccessible. Some sites dedicated to these old machines will actually disable HTTPS for you, like the Macintosh repository. After the first excitement had settled, I figured I should try to install OS X 10.3.2, as it might improve things. I'll spare you the anxiety, it didn't. But while working on this, I screwed up big time. The system folder could no longer be found, the machine was dead in the water. And so I got to embark on a journey of discovery. That journey taught me a lot I had long forgotten. In the end, this is a story about the power of the internet and the kindness of strangers who put their wisdom online. Head over to potfee.com to read the entire review. I love everything about this review from Klaus. Looking at the images he put in the blog post sure brought some back some fond memories for me too. In the rest of the written review, he explains how he got macOS 9 back up and running after he tried to do that upgrade to OS 10. He gives detailed instructions on how he made a thumb drive off of which to boot into macOS 9 and how he eventually did figure out how to get OS 10 10.13.2 running after all. He gives us screenshots of how HTTPS thwarted my dream of seeing podfeet.com on macOS 9, how he cheated with a quick three-line PHP script, and how great podfeet.com does look on OS 10 Panther great within a given definition of, of great. Anyway, thank you so much for giving us this fun walk down memory lane, Klaus. So, remember a few weeks ago when I told you that I'd become an affiliate for Wise Products? Well, this week I got the following message. 
quote, you're receiving this email because you are currently signed up as a member of our Wise in Response affiliate program. After a little over a month of operating this pilot program, we have decided it's time to phase it out and refocus our sights on our smart home offering. Oh, well, it was fun for the 15 minutes it lasted, I guess. And guess what? We've got a pledge break from the venerable Frank Petrie. Have you been injured on the job due to negligence and don't know where to turn? I'm attorney. I am overcompensated from the law firm Bob and Bob. Jeez, but that's horrible. I really hope you get that straightened out. Anyhow, the reason I'm here, though, is to ask for your help to continue to bring you the Nasillacast. We need your financial backing. Bandwidth isn't cheap, you know. Either way, we would appreciate your support. Go to Patreon right now and get $5, $10, whatever you can afford. Regarding your situation, my brother-in-law has had several interactions, shall we say, with the law, and he may be able to give you a few pointers. I hope that works out for you. Well, while I appreciate Frank's optimism, and I would love it if you pledge 5 to 10 bucks. hey, go crazy, go to 20 even a dollar a week really does add up if enough people do it. So don't get, don't get intimidated by Frank's suggested uh, donations there. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. Uh, how crazy are things this week, Bart? Um relatively quiet actually i was i was pleasantly surprised this morning when i sat down with my rss reader it the scroll bar was the wrong size in a good way oh good um and actually we have our shortest ever covid update to start the show off um and it's purely good news and i get to brag about my adoptive home country um ireland have joined the parade of nations who went with the apple google api route they launched their app and it was trusted uh, by the people of Ireland. A few days after it launched, it had reached 25% of the entire adult population of the nation. Wow. So Which there's means, hope you could get to that magic, what is it, 60% they say it needs to be? Yeah, I think like in an ideal world, you, you'd really like to get the 60. But, you know, to, to, to go out of the gate and to not have people assume that it must be evil and tracking them... It was just a successful launch, and the fact that they used Apple's API really helped with that. Oh, good, good. Um, and I was, I, I generally expect the least from from state agencies in our country, not out of malice, just out of... <laughs> Experience? <laughs> sort of stick in the muddiness. <laughs> We've always done it this way, why would we change that sort of attitude? But... I, I link in the show notes to the privacy page for the Irish app because it's really, really good. And I mean, some of it is Ireland specific, but most of it isn't. It's just explaining the implications of the Google API. So if there's other countries listening, start your photocopiers, go to covidtracker.gov.ie because they've made that so like it's very few words and it's nicely spaced out and it's not intimidating, but it's accurate and informative. Oh, that is readable. Yeah. 
So it's I was really point. impressed. And I don't, I'm not easily impressed by our state agencies. I'm a bit of a cynic. So that was kind of good. Um, we talked a few weeks ago. Um, it was after the world turned on its head. It was in April, I think. Um, Apple sort of went on a solo run and said that we from September will not be accepting HTTPS certificates that are more than a year in length starting from September. Oh, right. And the rest of the industry had their first meeting since then a few weeks ago, and the other browser manufacturers rolled on board with Apple, and that sort of left the certificate authorities with no choice but to accept an extremely bad grace that certificates shall be one year going forward from September. In bad grace, they don't like it? They don't like it. They were very cranky about it. And they really, it's the first time actually in the the CAB forum is what the organization is called, where the, the browser vendors and the certificate authorities get together. And for most of the CAB's existence, they've, they haven't been partisan. But this just split straight down the middle. Certificate authorities say no, browsers say yes. And hmm. it may have done lasting damage actually to the organization, which is a pity. It was better when they worked together. So, hmm. anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go down downer on that story, but yeah. <laughs> um, continuing the fight to protect people from the potential hazards of facial recognition, particularly false positives and stuff. Um, the great city of Boston in the United States of America has put a ban on the government use of facial recognition for now. Basically, they want to be sure that you know, the issues with racial disparity between the algorithms and so forth is addressed before they allow it to be used for official stuff in Boston. Huh, that's interesting. I would say sensible. I really didn't see this all going as badly as it has, but I'm glad they're changing gears. Yeah, I, I think this is a tech result of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think. Yeah, maybe, but it, they had started to point out the problems. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe actually making a move on banning the use of it is uh, because of the Black Lives Matter. Yeah, movement. I mean, you're yeah. right. There, there was definitely people campaigning for this to happen, but they weren't getting traction. They weren't getting listened to, and now they are because one of the big issues is false po- false recognition of people of basically who are not middle aged white men. Uh, it's really good mm-hmm. at telling middle aged white men apart. Really good. But everyone else it tends to have lots of false positives. And so you get randomly flagged as a criminal when it just misrecognized you. And since it I'm doesn't happen quick- to middle-aged white men, it's not seen as a problem. And now right. it is. I'm going to put in a quick plug for uh, Tom Merritt's new show, uh, Know a Little More. He did one on machine learning, and he gets into how the data set that you uh, teach machine learning on affects what happens. And he does it all with cats, and it was it was quite good, I thought. It was a very good analogy, actually. I really like the cats, and because cats, of course, come in calico and striped, etc. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, it's in the name, right? Machine learning. If you take a student and you teach them with biased data, they will learn the wrong thing. Well, if you take a computer and teach it which bi- with biased data, it will learn the wrong thing. And and I think it's important to keep in mind that there isn't any supposition that someone intentionally put biased data in. It's not like, well, yeah. I'm a racist, and so I'm not going to put any African-American faces in here. It's just like, oops, we forgot to have black people on our team. 
<laughs> and it's also it's structural, right? Because you, you, a lot of the time you're basically making do with the data you can get your hands on at a reasonable price. And a lot of it is from corporate uh, ID databases and stuff. And if companies mm. hire more middle-aged white men, then the data that's available for free is middle-aged white men. And therefore, w- due to purely structural issues oh. and no actual thought, negative or positive, you end up with a biased data set, which you accidentally teach the computer. So if you put in your data set is Fortune 500 CEOs? Exactly, exactly. Although it's That's more middle management than engineers, but same problem. It's Yeah. My daughter was playing around in, I don't know, Snapchat or one of those tools, and she uh, brought up Giphy and did a search for scientist. Every single drawing was a woman. Well, that's... It was... Wonderful. It sure looked intentional, right? <laughs> sure, but that's... You know, we need some proactive bias the other way sometimes because I I, I I try not to but I find myself making assumptions when there's a gender neutral name of a scientist I assume it's a bloke and I shouldn't do that and I bloody well know better than that and yet I catch and, myself and yet, yeah I and I would like to say I do the same thing too I, I catch myself all the time and and the only way I've been able to combat this and I've talked about it on the show a few times before is that I have started always saying she no matter what the context I say she is my default and right. then that makes me think well do I really know it's a she whereas if you say he you don't even bother to think about it right because that's just what you've always said yeah no that's a good trick actually I like it because that reminds and, you to think you, you got to do it on bad things too. So if you say, I went to the doctor today, I'm going to say, oh, what did she say? But if you say, this jerk cut me off, I'd say, oh, what did she do? Gotcha. <laughs> right? You got to do the bad ones. You can't just pick the, the, the ones that, you know, raise women up. You got to just do it all she or all he, you know, but pay attention, right? That's how I've been training myself anyway. I'm going to give that a go. See how I get on. Plus Thanks. it freaks people out. When you, they say the plumber came over today and you say, what did she fix? They go, why did you think it was a woman? Why not? And then you just wait. <laughs> you wait a beat and they go, oh. Yeah. I mean, what really makes you annoying. think a female can't plumb? <laughs> um, we talked last time about Apple introducing a feature in the iOS 14 betas to flag whenever an app read the clipboard. And at that oh, stage, yeah. that it shook loose a few things. Uh, well, there was more shaking of the tree since we last spoke. Uh, so Reddit got caught as well. And uh, they have fixed their iOS app, so it doesn't do that anymore. And LinkedIn are actually being sued over it. Uh, of course, it's a class action suit. I guess we shouldn't really mm-hmm. be surprised by that. But there we go. Yeah, so to remind people, um, if an app is reading your clipboard, you'd get a notification. And somebody did a video of LinkedIn and it was crazy. It was like every single letter they typed, yeah. the notification was coming, going LinkedIn got that from the clipboard. LinkedIn got it from the clipboard. LinkedIn got, it was, it was a, I think it was really powerful in video. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently there's some the sort of third down, party right? library, lots of apps use that's supposed to basically check for spam by seeing if what is in the final thing you send is the same as what's in your clipboard because then you could be just copy pasting copy pasting all over the place and spamming Mm. but the code is really badly written and it's basically being triggered not when you hit the send button but on every keystroke Mm. and they got away with it for years and now it makes them look hella bad I wonder whether Apple saw that and said 
hey, let's just put a little thing in here. This will be fun. Well, we, we know that a few months ago, a security researcher made a lot of noise about the clipboard being abused. And at that stage, Apple sort of had two choices. They could have started to treat the clipboard like they do the contacts and your location and photos and make the app ask you for permission and then have that permission forever. But that's probably not a good fit for the clipboard. So I think Apple are experimenting with what if, particularly in the beta, we make a really obnoxious warning. Is light enough to deal with this? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good description of it, it is light. Um, so uh, this isn't triggered if you have a clipboard manager, is it? Um, no, because then you... It, You've explicitly Okay, so I'm not sure, because this isn't access. on the Mac, it's only on iOS. Uh, but right, if you but I have a clipboard do the action of, in, of, of you interacting with your own clipboard, that isn't going to trigger it. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. Okay. Uh, but what I don't know about a clipboard keyboards? manager. That's... Yeah, what about I don't know. Third-party keyboards is, yeah, is the honest yeah. answer. Huh? Should hmm. be interesting. Well, yeah, I just want to watch my, out for. Yeah, I've got it on my iPad. I could put that beta clipboard manager on there. Uh, it is in beta, so it'd be interesting to see what it says. Yeah, and actually, also oh, you jumped into the public beta with both feet when it came out. No, with one toe. With one my toe. iPad okay. Mini. <laughs> My iPad mini's entire job has devolved into being the control surface for uh, Mimo Live when we're doing the live show. So I tap the screen to mute Steve on it. So it can definitely be uh, risked. Cool. Yeah. Um, There's also a link in the show notes to a very good article on iMore that just gives a nice, well-explained little summary of what this whole clipboard snooping thing is all about and just sort of explains it very nicely if anyone wants to catch themselves up quickly and easily. Oh, cool. Um, The Senate Judiciary Committee has passed a slightly tweaked version of the Earnet Act we have been worrying about for some time. That's Senator Lindsey Graham's latest present. Um, so the bill has now passed. Can I stop out. you for a second? Sorry, I just I just learned from uh, again Tom Merritt's know it a little more when he talked about safe harbor that that was actually is a, actually bipartisan. There's a um, a Republican and a Democrat on that one. Yeah, there is. Unfortunately, actually, when it comes to the um, like Senator Feinstein has a terrible habit of being on the wrong side of privacy issues, um, which is unfortunate because I believe she's yours. Mm-hmm. As in California, not Alison Sheridan. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, the, the, I, I don't actually want to get too deep into it. I just sure, wanted to say sure. that one is bipartisan. It might have been Lindsey Graham's idea. I don't know, but it is. But bipartisan. He, he's taking the running on it, shall we say? But okay. yes, it is okay. sponsored by people of both parties. And you mentioned okay. now a little more LinkedIn show notes related content because oh. this this bill. <laughs> One of its effects is to remove Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act protection, i.e. to remove safe harbour in certain situations. So again, Tom explains all about safe harbour. Which I thought I understood, and I mostly from listening to Tom and other shows, but I didn't understand it uh, the way I do now. I'd know a little more. God, we sound like shills for Tom. Yeah. Uh, but it was a good episode because it sort of describes how it's in this kind of weird state anyway right now. But uh, so this has just been passed by the Senate Judiciary Committee, but it has to go to the Senate now. 
Correct. So now it moves on to the full Senate for debate and perhaps passage. And then assuming it passes the Senate, it would need to also get passed in the House and then it would need to get signed by the president. So we're still in early days of this bill and it has the amendments have watered it down a little bit, but it's still quite problematic. Just just to remind anybody who hasn't just listened to Tom's episode, this is specifically about um, how liable are you for things someone else puts on your network or on your your web service and what privileges do you have or what protections do you have as a result and this bill is saying well maybe you can have that but you're going to have to earn it by doing some set of things and that set of things hasn't been defined and that's yeah, why and that set of things the, basically could be defined and in the first version of the bill that set of things could be defined by the attorney general so okay uh, it's so now the Attorney General and the states get to have a bit of a veto, which means you could end up with okay. different laws in every state, which isn't really all that much better. And, and one of the big concerns is that it, 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 the way it's written, the door is open for there to be a backdoor clause in it. And wide so, open, until wide open. That's so basically closed, the idea would be, unless you do what this panel, unless you do the things that are not specified in the bill that will be made up at a later date, you will lose your, your Section 230 protection. And one of the things Senator Graham is big on is he wants an end to end to end encryption. So this seems to be basically past this thing, which gives the attorney general the power to do anything. And then I get to have my backdoor against encryption is the giant big fear. And that is the obvious danger of passing a law that says, yes, the thing we don't know will become required. Right. So that's why it's a big concern and why people like me and Bart care about it. Indeed, and why the EFF are extremely worried about it, because they really don't like laws that say, yes, this group of people over here get to decide what becomes the law. That's what this law says, that these people get to decide a law you don't get to vote on. Right. Uh, Social media continue to evolve in our modern times. Um, Bad news out of the way first. Um, Facebook, on the one hand, this is a glass partially full story. Because Facebook did get in outside auditors to audit their um, management of their platform in terms of uh, voter fraud and uh, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, the auditors did not come back and say, well done, Facebook, have a gold star. (laughs) They came back rather scathingly. But to end on a glass half full, Facebook published the audit and Facebook admitted that they could have done better. So hmm. it's not entirely doom and gloom. Well, that's good. So they published their own thing saying we didn't do well. Yeah. Yeah. And they're fairly okay. like the blog post where they released the results. They're, they eat better the old humble pie. Um, whether they change anything is a whole other question, but it's definitely better than it could be. Um and I'm going to plug an episode of the Reset podcast where they dedicate an episode to a real problem, actually, with climate change fact-checking, which is the so-called opinion loophole, which they explain. And it's about a 20-minute podcast episode, um, which covers controversy with um, climate denial on Facebook very well, I think. Um, so okay. that's for anyone who wants to listen. Uh Good. Now, so now we get to go on to the good news column. So Facebook have announced changes to how they're going to do their news feeds. And they're going to prioritize original reporting above copy-paste, copy-paste garbage. Good. <laughs> this, 
I mean, I, I'm never going to read Facebook, but I still think it's good. Um, and Facebook and Instagram started to proactively put up notices on their site asking people to wear masks, which, again, social, socially constructive. I like when Facebook chooses to, to engage positively. Good, good. And Google are changing some defaults. So Google have a feature where you can enable auto-deletion of your data after three, six, 18 months or never. And the default used to be never. So you had the option to proactively go in and make the stuff auto-delete. But you had to think to do that and it was nested 20 cabillionaires deep in the morass of privacy settings. Now the default is 18 months. So that's way so better than never. This isn't like your email. No, no, it's it's the data Google track on you, not okay. What you st- it's what they store about you, not what you store. Okay, okay, um, yeah. Okay, uh, we have no deep dives, so we jump straight into action alerts. Microsoft have released two emergency patches for Windows 10 and Windows Server 2019. And the strange thing about them is they're not coming through the standard Microsoft update system. They're coming through the Windows Store. And that means that for regular home users, these updates have happened silently, automatically, and you don't have to worry about them. But there's been a really weird unintended side effect uh, in corporations because a lot of corporations disable the Microsoft Store through Active Directory Group policy. And that means that those machines have now become unupdatable for these critical vulnerabilities. So that's something that corporations are going to have to reconsider how they choose to deal with the Microsoft Store because it's now gone from being a place to get optional software to being a place to get security updates. Yeah. (laughs) But again, for our audience, it's all good, which is good. Now, I probably should have put these in the opposite order because for our audience, this may be a problem. And Netgear, there was a... So there was a remote code execution vulnerability found in many, 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 many Netgear devices. Massive list, link in show notes. Uh, And it has been patched on many devices. But of course, there are devices that are not going to get patched because they're out of support. So if you have a Netgear device, you need to see whether you're on the list of people who have a software update to apply and are golden, or if you are now in the group of people who need to go buy a new router. So you have two links in the show notes uh, that are both to um, kb.cert.org. Which one is no, the, the one that tells you? the second is kb.netgear.com. Oh, sorry, you're right. It starts with KB. Why, why are they both Knowledge KB? base. Ah, look at that. Yes. Okay, so if you see the list of uh, affected devices, it'll tell you whether you can get the update or not. That's my understanding. So that's Netgear's official page. So it keeps updating, of course, because that's the job of, of the Netgear KB. So that's basically everything Netgear are telling us about the vulnerability. Okay. So stay tuned, I guess, for uh, updates. Okie dokie. Moving on to worthy warnings. Um, Naked Security are warning of a scam that's targeting website owners and bloggers. So frankly, people like you and me, Alison, who run our own website, but we're not giant big corporations, they're receiving emails pretending to be from major hosting companies, that you know, like verb followed by name of parent, those kind of companies, um, offering you secure DNS, which sounds like something you'd want, uh, and 
providing a link in email that you and I, of course, would never click on. But when you do click on it, you end up in a page that isn't actually said major brand, but is a really good clone of their web page with a login box. So three guesses where this goes. You then enter your username and password in an attempt to secure your DNS, handing over the username mm-hmm. and password the bad guys need to take over your DNS and hijack your website. <laughs> so beware, and we are the kind of people being targeted. So not, not the big guys, us, us little folk. I only do things like this if you point me at it and tell me to do it. So I'm golden. Good. Good. And you also, you're, as as you are the master of the never click on links and email. You type them indirectly, et cetera, et cetera. So <laughs> that I don't have to tell you. There has been a massive collection of data breaches put up for sale on the dark web. 133 million records from many different websites. So this is, I think, a good time to... If you're using a password manager that has support for Have I Been Pwned built in, which is true of 1Password and LastPass, then that app is proactively making sure that you're not caught up in these mega breaches. And if you are, it will warn you proactively. But if you're not using a password manager that has been integrated with Have I Been Pwned, now is probably a good time to do a little checkup over at haveibeenpwned.com and just to make sure that you don't have passwords you need to go change. Because there's a lot okay. of sites been affected by these mega breaches recently. So we have um, some services that are checking our accounts and we get reports of what's going, you know, what's happening to our data and everything in our logins. And they always come back and go, the email address allison at podfeet.com was found in a dark database. Really? <laughs> Well, yeah, but you know, I mean, that basically means that you are, you are tied up in these breaches. And so with how well, I've been phoned, they're more helpful. They, they yes. don't just tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have I been pwned says, here's the site. Uh, yeah, you, you need to change your password because it's in there. These other ones just say Allison at podfeet.com. Yeah, yes. like, well, yeah. My chances of being <laughs> alive on planet Earth in 2020 and having been on the internet for 30 years... I am in a breach. That is that is exactly. beyond the question. Right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, you need more help. You need like, where did you find this password? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what site was hacked? Um, Intigo are reporting a new Mac Trojan called Evil Quest. Um, it is a Trojan, uh, but it is spreading quite actively via pirated Mac software. So this is a timely reminder that you don't download software from untrusted sources... And you definitely don't steal software because it deprives coders of the ability to put food on the table. And I find that objectionable. So that's me on my little soapbox here. But God darn it, don't go stealing software and then you won't get hit by these Trojans. Exactly. I'm not sympathetic at all here. I enjoy these. Good. Yeah, you're right, because you, you consider it was... I, I had a phrase I used to use for it called cyber Darwinism. You sort of get what you deserve. <laughs> now, can Evil Quest be caught not by downloading pirated software? Um, It may not be pirated, but it's always... It's a Trojan, so you do have to do it to yourself. It's going to involve some form of trickery. So either telling you that you need a Flash plugin or something, and then instead of going to Adobe and downloading it, you follow the link that the pop-up told you to go to. So that's social engineering. So I don't... That's different. That's naivete rather than malice Mm -hmm. on the part of the people, right? They're not pirates. They're 
just a little bit too innocent for the internet in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't spread on its own. It requires you to let it in. Okay. So be careful. Ever-present vigilance is your defense here. Notable right. news then. A bug has been found in Mojave, which made a fair bit of headlines briefly, um, but it has a fire extinguisher next to it. So this is one of those bugs where the nice-to-have layer of privacy protection that Apple has added on top of the Mac has been found to have a hole in it. But that means that it's not a security vulnerability so much as the extra protection that we've gotten since Mojave is wound back on certain scenarios. So basically, it means that Catalina is now, from this one privacy point of view, other apps can read your bookmarks. Um, no better than things were in Mojave. Sorry, before Mojave, so whatever whatever place that was. Um, Mavericks, I think. Um, so it's not good, and I'm sure Apple will fix it, but it's not catastrophic because all it is is that a malicious app that you choose to install and you would have to proactively go out and install said malicious app can read your favorites in Safari, which is a privacy violation. But that was possible for every app before Apple introduced the extra privacy protections in Mojave. So it's okay. bad, but it's not catastrophic in any way. That makes sense? I think so. Um... Something to look forward to, Intel have released the details of Thunderbolt 4, which is great timing because it's only, what, about a month or so ago that we talked about a whole bunch of vulnerabilities being found in Thunderbolt 3, and the only solution would be a future revision of the spec that would put stronger rules in place for protecting direct memory access. I remember we talked about it and said the only solution was hopefully Thunderbolt 4. Well, it would appear someone at Intel was listening to the security researchers because in order to be certified Thunderbolt 4 compliant, you must implement direct memory access protections. Yeah. So it will be not faster in the absolute sense. It will be faster in the sense that it can do the same speed for more stuff. So you're not going to get a faster speed, but you can now have two 4K monitors through a single Thunderbolt 4 port instead of one. Or if you're somehow living in a cinema, an 8K display through your Thunderbolt <laughs> 4 port. Um, How much money do you have? Yeah. And for a dock to be certified Thunderbolt 4 compatible, or rather, for sorry, for a port on a computer to be certified Thunderbolt 4 compatible, it must be able to handle docks with four Thunderbolt ports, one of which must be a charge port. So it has to have four ports? No. So your port, so let's say you're making a laptop, right? Allison's Laptops Inc. If you want Mm -hmm. the hole in the side of your laptop to be certified Thunderbolt 4, it has to be good enough to handle a dock with four Thunderbolt ports. Okay, got you, got you. Yeah. Okay. And secondarily, so the dock has to be able to do PD, but so does your laptop. So Allison Inc. has to make PD available and Allison Inc. has to make it possible for the docks to make PD available. And it has to be the highest of the levels of PD. I I don't remember the number of watts, but it was the top of the line number of watts is now. Basically, the the highest number of watts you could get through Thunderbolt 3 is now the floor for Thunderbolt 4. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Because I always like the the, the, lots of watts. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the fact that we're now using that port as the everything port means it's really important that it take power good. Um, So uh, definitely progress. 
Um, and then two stories from the United States. So the first one is an interesting one. The court rules that Facebook widgets, basically those little Facebook like buttons, can be considered wiretaps under federal law. <laughs> and this has potential implications. All of this dates back quite a few years to when Facebook were tracking users who were not logged into Facebook. So there were people who had not agreed to Facebook's terms and services because they didn't even have Facebook accounts, but they were being tracked by Facebook through these so-called dark accounts. And a lower court had found that Facebook were grand because it wasn't a wiretapping issue. And since it was just a privacy thing and there was no obvious sign of harm, it was grand. And an appeals court went, no, no, I'm pretty sure that's a breach of the Wiretap Act. And so that case Mm. has now got a big fire lit under it. And so that now becomes interesting as it goes back down to the lower courts. And a pure good news story to end. Supreme Court has upheld a federal ban on robocalls. Who took that to the Supreme Court? <laughs> Those charming people who want to be who want to ring you is who took that up to the Supreme Court, unfortunately. But they lost. Jeez. So the court has upheld the FCC, Federal Communications, yes, FCC. The FCC's right to ban robocalls. So, wow. That is, so Ajit Pai can continue his war on robocalls unimpeded, which is good. Top tips then. Um, these are just timely reminders, right? But it's always nice when someone um, someone finds a cool thing. So two of these are nice instructions for setting up two-factor auth. So if you haven't done two-factor auth yet for Google, there's a nice set of instructions from iMore. And if you haven't done two-factor auth in your Amazon account, there's also, oh, they're also from iMore. I guess iMore did a little refresher on their 2FA tutorials. Um, so oh, they're good. they're nice, just convenient to have. And then a Can German I... blogger oh. discovered that f- to be compliant with GDPR, YouTube had to provide a mechanism for embedding videos into your website without embedding a tracker. But they don't advertise it because they just have to provide it. They don't have to tell you about it. So he has instructions on his blog for how you tweak the URL and the embed to make it be the tracker-free version of the video that you embed in your website, not the tracker-laden one, which you get by default. Oh, that's interesting. It is. He also has a really, really, really cool web address. So his name is Dries, and he is dri.es. I I am <laughs> utterly utterly envious. I have um, is ES Spain, España. Yeah, ES is indeed Spain's TL, uh, top level domain. He is German, yeah. but he through the use of the Spanish top level domain, he has gotten his first name as a domain name. That is that's cool. It oh, is. I like it. I there I is like a dot or t, but that. there is no ba available. Oh. <laughs> You, you might actually have a good chance, Alison, because ON, I think, might be a top-level domain. And AL, you know, Alice... Oh. Might oh, be possible. That sounds Just fun. Anyway. <laughs> um, I did want to say something on two-factor authentication. Um, one of the things you and I have talked about quite a bit is banks and two-factor authentication. Mm. And one of the things that's really irritates me on a daily basis is that my GitHub account is protected far better than any of my financial institutions. I mean, you got to go through a lot to get into your GitHub account. Yeah. And uh, 
But the other day, I was actually on the phone to the the person that manages my money, and I uh, I, I wanted to log into the uh, the institution that I've been complaining about them not doing this, hmm. and I went to log in, and it said, um, "So we need to be able to send you a push notification. Uh, click here and or go download the app to your mobile device." Ooh. But I was sitting on my on my Mac. And my first instinct was that was kind of weird. And she was like, oh, this is a problem. I better talk to management, whatever. And I said, well, hang on, let me see what it is. So I installed the app on my phone and it is the app from my financial institution. I verified that. And what happens is when I'm on my Mac, I'm in Safari, I click the button to say, get a notification. My phone sends me a notification. I simply look at my phone and the app looks at my face ID and says, yes, that's her and lets me in. There must be someone selling this to banks because my bank upgraded from really annoying 2FA to what sounds like exactly the same system about six months oh, ago. Oh, interesting, interesting. I, I, I sat there trying to figure out, was there anything that was scary about that? Nope. And it wasn't. I mean, I had to have both of my devices available. Yes. Um, I had to have my face on. <laughs> yeah. Well, the great thing is, right, so push notifications don't rely on the really, really untrustworthy SMS protocol. Right, right. So it's actually a secure channel, and it's a completely separate channel to the channel your web browser uses. So it's out of band and secure. If I am remembered correctly, I do also have to enter my username and password. Yes. So that's the way it works in my bank. So I got to log in in the normal way. And then after I've proved, after I've half proved myself by giving my login and password, I th it then puts a thing up saying ver waiting for verification. And I get a notification to my phone, which I can either accept on the phone or in the case of my bank, they have a matching watch app and I can actually just oh. tap my wrist. Nice. Well, wait a minute. Oh, because it's because it's connected your wrist. It's authenticated. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, exactly. They, they Assuming still watch do have unlocked, a... Et cetera. They still have a button that says "Request Temporary Pin." I wonder so how I guess that works. If if that's a good process. Far. It's probably still okay. Yeah, but I hope they have some hoops. Though. I I had pinned a very long but not yet sent email to my financial person, uh, outlining all of the reasons why this was idiotic that they didn't have it. And I never sent it. And then this happened, and I was and she's like, "Well, I still don't like that." And I said, "No, no, no, no. This is really, really good." Yeah, that's, that's superb. Yeah. Uh, excellent. No, that's really good. Moving on to interesting insights. Um, Imor, geez, Imor are getting a lot of love in these show notes, and I never actually <laughs> realized the pattern because these stories are gathered over two weeks, so I don't realize the patterns, but Imor are getting a lot of love from me today. Uh, they've done a big Imor. article. It's basically an overview and review of all of the major AV options for Mac users. So it's an overview in the sense that they've broken it down into best for this scenario, best for that scenario. But they haven't just listed the apps. They've actually done a sort of a mini review of each and every one as well. So it's like an overview and a bunch of reviews. Someone put a lot of work into it. So if you fancy running AV on your Mac, that iMore article definitely leverage all their hard work. Did they, by any chance, answer the question of whether they think you need it at all, though? That wasn't really the focus of this article. I, If they haven't, I know Naked Security have regularly addressed that question. So if you search for that over the Naked Security blog, you will get some informed opinion on that. Mm. Um, my feeling is that it really depends on your use of your computer and your level of digital nativeness. 
Um, so I would, family members, there's a lot of them, I would feel better if they were running AV. Not, mm, okay. you know, just because they're a little more naive and inexperienced about how how you might catch a Trojan. Um, so it would be nice if something had their back. Um, but I don't run AV at the moment. Right. That is one thing that bothers me is usually when um, smart people answer that question, they answer for themselves. Like, well, okay, Which is yeah, really dumb, ironically. <laughs> yeah. Last story then is a just because it's cool. Um, if you go to your, this is true of iOS on your Mac. If you go to your about this Mac, it'll tell you what version of the OS you're running. Uh, but if you go into enough detail, I think you need to, in the Mac, I think you need to go into the system report. And on iOS, you will see it. But there's not just a version number of the operating system. There's also the build number. And that's always like this cryptic thing. Well, those build numbers have real meaning. And they can often tell you what's been going on behind the scenes at Apple. Because they un- they sort of give you a little peek under the hood about what's going on. And they can tell you things like how long Apple worked on a version because they're basically daily build numbers in there. So if there's if the number has only incremented by a few, then there's not much work has gone into that update. Whereas if the number has in- incremented by lots and lots and lots of builds, then it's something Apple worked really hard on. And it also shows us things like uh, that when Apple released, was it iOS 13.1? They hadn't intended that to be 13.1. They'd intended that to be 13.0. And you can tell that based on the build numbers. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, so there's basically so it's it's a it's a nice story from Tidbits that explains the logic of the build numbers, how you read them, and then it goes through a bunch of versions of the Mac OS and of iOS that broke the pattern and how you can use the build number to figure out what happened inside Apple. What, you know, they were forced to change course, they were forced to make this into a major version instead of a minor version, all those kind of things. So it's actually kind of fascinating. And so when people say things like, you know, Apple hadn't intended this to be released as a major version, sometimes it's not just speculation. Sometimes you can actually tell if you know how to read the build numbers. I wonder if they built all this information by inference. You know, if you track something long enough, you can find the pattern and figure out what it means. I they, I don't know. I don't know how secret the build numbers are because they're basically they're basically build, three a, numbers where one of the numbers is a letter because otherwise you couldn't tell where it was compared to the rest. Sure. But I'm saying you'd have to track this for a long time to start, unless you had insider knowledge, to say what does a mean when it's in a when it's in a build oh we have found that a is always the initial release oh look this one doesn't fit that pattern therefore we know this other information but you got to build the pattern first yeah i guess i'm just wondering cuz build numbers are so fundamental like anyone who has ever written one line of code for apple understands apple build numbers so the amount of people who would have to keep their nda forever perfectly to keep it a secret <laughs> is infinite well not infinite but okay huge quite long <laughs> so i i, I think it's a case that it's cool. just an unkeepable secret <laughs> and it might even really be that if you go read the documentation in developer.apple.com it mightn't even be a secret because it would be impossible to keep a secret anyway so it's actually possible there's like a, a knowledge base hidden away in developer.apple.com but i've not had much luck getting valuable information out of developer.apple.com um Anyway, that's, that's, another, that's a whole other kettle of fish. 
Let us cleanse our palate. Although, to be honest, it wasn't too bad, right? We were our palates no, aren't no. too mucked up, but anyway, we can cleanse them regardless. Uh, the first thing is an app I have found that has got that, that is going to save me from ruining clothes. And I this happens to me from time to time where I buy some cool clothes and I don't understand what the symbols on the label mean and I sort of assume uh, if I throw it in at 30 degrees it'll be fine and then I end up with a t-shirt for a baby instead of for a human being <laughs> or, or for an adult uh, or I end up with you know my beautiful linen shirt in tatters or something uh, that should in theory never happen again because there's a wonderful image recognition app called Laundry Lens you point it at the label and it tells you what you should do and what you shouldn't do with said article of clothing Wow, that's pretty cool. That is darn cool. And even if its AI can't read the label, it has explanations for every symbol. So worst case scenario, just go find the symbol and read what it says. Um, Okay. So it's sort of a win-win. It's just a a lovely little app. And then you, you gave me uh, the real palate cleanser of the week. Uh, But you need to set aside some time to do your palate cleansing. Um. It's an hour-long conversation, um, but it doesn't feel like an hour. Um, I, I, I watched it all while on my walk yesterday morning, um, and it's the wonderful David Pogue having a sort of an informal interview. It's a very loose format, and the panellists are all extremely respectful of each other, so it really works. They're not stomping on each other or anything. So it's quite a free-flowing conversation once David Pogue gets it started. But it's the fathers of the internet is sort of how you could describe it. And I'm afraid to say they are all blokes. Uh, they have the beards to prove it in some of the cases. Um, and all so white blokes. It's Tim Berner, Sir, sorry. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Vint Cerf, one of the inventors of this little thing called TCPIP that powers the internet. And a certain chap called Al Gore, who basically invented the term internet information superhighway in his attempts to get the internet rolled out across america i think that was one of my favorite parts of the interview was when he explained why he came up with that term because it sounded kind of silly to a lot of us but he had a really good reason for it i don't want to spoil it yeah exactly and likewise because i know people mocked al gore for saying he played a part in the in the launch of the internet and in hindsight i should not have been one of the ones to scoff because not every politician's an idiot turns out um, and you're right, the story where he explains it is brilliant It's a perfect analogy <laughs> Much better than, who is it, the, the politician about the pipes getting clogged? Because that wasn't such a good analogy Oh, that was the Alaskan senator yeah. Yes, yes, oh, Stevens, I think of um, from, Yeah, mm. that, that didn't go so good But no, the information superhighway, that works That works as I say, really good conversation with really interesting people. I hadn't really seen uh, Vince Cerf interviewed. I I, know, I knew his name, you know, because I'm a networking nerd. Uh, but to see him interviewed and in conversation, he's a really cool guy too. Um, and I'm not surprised Tim Berners, he's a cool guy. I knew that already. But it was a really fun conversation. Yeah, my only problem with it is that it is, um, it's... A YouTube video, and you clearly can walk and watch video at the same time. I have fallen down and hit it, hit my face on the concrete walking, not looking at my phone. So I'm not going to do that. And I keep starting it and not having time to watch it. And then I tried just listening to it on my headphones over YouTube. And then YouTube shuts off if you shut the phone off. And so oh. I need to extract the audio and, and I'll just, 
I'll probably just uh, audio hijack pro all over it and and extract that. Yeah, it just reminded me of how right John Gruber is that the iOS app from YouTube is criminally bad. Like you can't <laughs> lock your phone or it stops playing audio. Why? I mean, yeah. I know picture-in-picture is not coming until iOS 14, so you can't give me picture-in-picture on my iPhone. Fair enough. But you don't have to kill background audio. Background audio has been supported since, like, iOS 4 or something. (laughs) Irks me no end. By the way, I just changed your YouTube link to youtube-nocookie.com for our little friend, Dries. Excellent. By the way, that's the only trick. It's YouTube dash no cookie. You just take whatever the URL is and stick dash no cookie on it. That's actually really descriptive. I should do a little text expander for that just to inject. Yeah, Ooh, I, could be, do it yeah. as a, I could do it as a service uh, using Automator. Yeah. Just yeah, write expression. that and give it to me if you would. Yeah, I, I, will, I will try to remember to do it and then I will publish it on bartb.ie and we can all have the love because I want to be able to do that because you're right. I don't yeah. want to be putting tracking cookies all over people's computers because I tell them to listen to a cool interview. Right, right, right. Well, I fixed this one, so that's good. Thank you. Well, this has been, uh, this has been cool, Bart. I enjoy not wanting to shoot myself when I'm at the end of security bits. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I have to say it's been it's been really nice to have an entire episode of Security Bits without any need for panic or too much worry. So, yeah, it's been fun. Um, and of course, even though there hasn't been too much need for panic, you should still always remain vigilant, ever present vigilant. And remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfee.com. Please do as Frank asked you and go to Patreon by going to podfee.com slash Patreon. If you'd rather do a one-time donation, podfee.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in our Slack community like Mike Price was talking about where you can go find him and chat with him, podfee.com slash Slack. If you're still a Facebook user, you can always find us at podfee.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show and watch all of Jason's GIFs and find out what name Marty has given himself this week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.